I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. Yummy cookie takeaways. That are in the form of not cookies. What is today's show about? Sex! Oh, God. Wait, that, you know, that's not how sex sounds. Wait, wait, let's try it again. Let's try it again. <laughs> What's today's show about? Sex. What's today's show about? Sex! What's today's show about? Sex. What um, nationality were you there at the end? Uh, I was trying to do my Penelope Cruz. By the way, you just turned bright red. <laughs> well, that's because I yelled sex so loud. Oh, it's not because you felt the pressure to say sex in so many different ways? No, I think I overextended myself. I shot my wad. Oh, <laughs> way to link it back. Mm-hmm. You, were you trying? Was that? Just trying I- to strip it down. <laughs> You're so clever. Thanks, babe. At the end of the show, everyone, you have to stick around. We do have a third segment today, and we have reached out to folks who follow free cookies and solicited. To our cookie monsters. Yes. These are real cookie monsters sharing their stories about their, their relationship. relationship with sex. Yeah. Because we, Catherine and I, and we will share with you why this whole episode is about we will sex. bear everything. I'm just trying to say sex as many times as possible. But the reason that we are basing this whole show around this very juicy topic is because we have on the show Esther Perel. And don't worry, we will explain who she is for those of you who don't know. But the quick hit is that she is a renowned sex and relationship therapist. And she has the sexiest accent you have ever heard in your entire life. Sexier than the one that you dropped when you were trying to be Penelope Cruz. And at the top of the show, you and I will jump into our own. We're going to talk about our sex life, everybody. Are we going to be honest? Is it going to be exciting? I don't know. Okay. So that is what is on store for today's episode of Free Cookies. But first. But first. No. I feel like the way I just said but first is like really something exciting. And is it exciting for us? It is exciting. We've, we've made a decision that we've been chewing on for a long time. Tell and our people. decision is that we are not going forward with any advertising because we've decided to join Patreon. Yeah. And Patreon is a site, some of you may have heard of it, some of you may have never heard of it, but it's a, it's a site where you basically reach out to those people who listen to your podcast, or if you're an artist or creator who follow your work, and instead of trying to go in the old school advertising model, you just simply hope that the people who love your work want to support your work. Right. And, you know, so let me just take a, a quick minute, because I, I set up the Patreon page, and you can find it at patreon.com, P-A-T reon.com and then you just have to search free cookies and we are the first free cookie site perhaps the only free cookie <laughs> site that comes up and you can you have the chance there you, you can just check out the page you know you can keep listening to this podcast absolutely for free you could choose to become a monthly subscriber at three dollars a month or at five dollars a month Catherine and I are working out what kind of bonus material we're going to put behind the monthly subscriptions, but that's still in the works. But I wanted to take a minute before we jump into all our conversation about sex to explain Patreon and to explain kind of what we're asking. And why we've decided to go this route. Yeah, and and here I'm stealing some really important thinking from Sam Harris, who runs Waking Up Podcast. Are you going to talk about a cup of coffee? Yes, that's what I was going to talk about. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, I okay. did know that. Because I, we want to make clear at the top of this episode that if you want to keep listening to this podcast for free and... That, that is going to be a completely open option. It's going to be here. hard for us to get past since free is actually in the word of our podcast. Yeah, free cookies. Of course you wanted to get it for free. And hey, I work Slightly in... Slightly paid for cookies. Yeah. The, that doesn't have the same ring. 
as someone who works in media, I've been and seen the transition of content companies and content creators trying to get people to pay for a content that they've always assumed would be free. And it's a really challenging hurdle to get people to clear. And so I understand that when you set something up like Patreon, it's like everyone's like, oh, but most of my podcasts, I listen to them for free. And like, it's hard to even go through the steps because you're just not used to it, right? Like I'm still someone who uses up my New York Times you know, 10 articles for free. And then when I hit the 11th, I'm like, damn it. So I understand <laughs> this. So you want to do the cup of coffee thing or you want me to? Well, I, I, here's the thing is yes, this will forever be free to our listeners. And this is our way of keeping the podcast ours and, and staying completely genuine to the message that we want to share without any greater shadowy influence yeah, because when, you know, as we were talking to a couple advertisers who might want to partner with this show, I started to get a level of anxiety about trying to incorporate like paid content, not just reading of ads, but something that would seem genuine. How many times can you say you love a mattress? I mean, uh, I'm going to bed again tonight, you guys. And you want to know what I love? My mattress. Here, if you're listening and you're someone who walks into a coffee shop every day and buys a latte, latte or Americano, I don't know what that... A latte. A latte. <laughs> it's some sort of like a Italian... Hey, a latte. Okay. Six. If you're someone who does that and it's like, hey, here's a couple bucks, whether three, four, five bucks, and like it doesn't, it's not something you even think about, well, then we'd love for you to consider becoming a member on Patreon. If you're someone who that is completely off the table for you, we want you to please keep listening to this do podcast you, we and are not, not drop a single dime. Yeah, we are not talking to you right now and like, hey, you know, do you want to subscribe for $3, $5? We are not talking to you. We love you Let's either way. Clear. It's just something that is financially viable for you and you would like to support this because you like the content that we're putting out. It would be very meaningful to us. So again, patreon.com and you can search free cookies and you can find us there and... Thanks for listening to that. I guess that was the first quote-unquote ad we ever dropped on this new incarnation. An of ad cookies. about ourselves. So now should we talk about sex? Let's talk about sex, baby. I knew that was coming up. That was kind of cliche that we went to that song, but was I love it? it. It's only one of the best songs ever. It is. I want to sex you up. There we go. See? So this conversation, well, why are we talking about sex? Who doesn't talk about sex? Sex sells. Sex is a really fascinating construct in society is what we landed on. Because Kate and I have been together and now we're approaching three years-ish. And we were discussing our sex life and what we personally as two people involved in a sexual relationship thinks is a healthy amount of sex versus what society projects is a healthy amount of sex. If you're already married or if you've been in a relationship for a while, I have a lot of anxiety if we don't have sex quote unquote once a week. That I I do think the once a week mark is something that we've been told is totally healthy. I truly don't know how many people lie about that because every, even friends that I try to be like completely open and on, you know, you want complete open and honesty. I still feel like sex is one of those things you kind of lie about anyway. I, you fudge your numbers. I hope so. I, I, I feel or maybe like, people don't, and maybe something's wrong with uh, us. I mean, we'll because find out people, after we air this episode. I, I mean, I personally feel like I have some scarring from my past relationship. I, I used to be married to a man and his sex drive was much greater than mine and unfortunately if a few days would go by 
and the deed had not been done, he would often become quite petulant about it and, and talk about me in the third person. It was weird. Wait, what? Um, we don't need to go into the I details. didn't know that part. Well, okay. But so you talk the about point, you in the third person. And snip. Okay. So, and the point is that I started to feel like something was wrong with me. Even to the point that I went to my doctor, I had my hormones tested, I was convinced that something must have been horribly wrong with me, that I didn't want to have the same amount of sex that he wanted to have. And that people were telling you, people being society and messaging that like was probably a healthy amount of sex. Right. You, you, what you pick up any like cosmopolitan or sex in the city and everyone's just sex, sex, sex. All I do is sex, sex coming out of my ears. And meanwhile, I'm like, do I have low T what's going on? And I mean, I remember crying to him, apologizing quote for being a bad wife. I actually thought I was a bad wife and not for a second did it ever like did I give myself permission to think this is where I am in my life right now and I don't need this level of sex or you know there's the ebb and flow where you go through levels where you want to have sex all the time and then like maybe you take a month off and that doesn't mean that your relationship is deteriorating or crumbling it's honoring your body and what it needs in that moment you know what I've been actually just thinking in the last couple of minutes as you were talking was going back over certain relationships I've had and then my relationship with sex within those. And certainly there's a newness element, but sometimes I worry that my sex drive is attached to pursuit and that's where it exists. As in like... Explain in further detail, please. I feel that the times when I'm most motivated to have sex and turned on is when the relationship is in the pursuit element and not just the newness element as Catherine ties on her sneakers. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, I'm going to start running. Oh, <laughs> for some reason I thought you meant sneakers like was a comfort level. And so we were in the comfort well, I stages. Figure if I which put on dope sneakers, that'll turn you on even more. But true. When yeah. you do come downstairs in like high tops and like a t-shirt and jeans, I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> You're the sexiest you've ever looked. But okay, get back to the pursuit part. So maybe... So you mean in the beginning of the relationship? Yeah, but, before... but, but I worry that it... Not worry, but I'm not just saying in the newness element. I'm saying in the pursuit element. Not just like... What if like if someone moved in, very gay of me, but if somebody moved in after three months, right? In, in essence, that would dull my sex drive. Not just the newness, because three months is pretty new. Right. But if all of a sudden it felt stable, I feel like my sex drive plummets. The cohabitation thing can definitely put a damper on the risque sex life, for sure. I think the first year of our relationship, we were having a, a, a pretty decent amount of sex. And I'm not going to even put a number on it. Because well, but if you don't put number on things, people don't know what you mean. Because I, there is no quote-unquote decent. I know, but I don't like saying a certain amount either because then I feel like I'm just going to mind F someone else out there listening who's going to be like, well, Catherine Budig said she used to have this much sex. Yeah, I just don't want to do that. That's been done to me, and so I'm trying to create a safe bubble for people to talk about how much they have sex. And for you and me, in my own personal interpretation, we were having a lot of sex. Yeah, because we were having sex like three, four times a week. You are unbelievable. I just think it's bullshit. I think it's bullshit to say a decent amount when nobody knows what we're talking about. But the, the decent amount, that's the whole point of this topic, is for people to 
totally what have in their our own minds. Definition. Yeah, but what in our minds was a decent, like to me, three or four sex times a week is like a shit ton of sex. Like I could go a month and read my book every night and be I know, fine. But when you say that out loud and people are listening, that's somehow going to make an imprint on their mind that three to four times is a lot and then somehow affect their opinion of No, their I own said sex for life. us, that was a decent amount, a good amount. That's a lot of sex. I just think if you're like, if we're just talking in a nebulous way and we're like, oh, well, we had what for us was a decent amount, but we don't name it. It's the equivalent of when you're trying to have a salary negotiation and you're like, oh, I make a good amount. You need concrete numbers to be able to Are understand. You, sure you just don't need concrete numbers for every Look, single situation that ever happens. I hope a takeaway that people get from this is that they don't need to look to someone else to quantify a number that is appropriate or inappropriate. And as long as we continue quantifying what is a lot or what is not a lot of sex, that is, in my opinion, inevitably going to hurt people. I agree with you on that. Very much front. so. And I think that's important, but I think what to take what I want to take out of what you said was making sure that the way we talk about numbers isn't to say we are actually offering a judgment value on the number, which maybe is what I did. Like we were having a lot, which is three to four, where some people they'd be like twice a day. So, so 15 is a lot, right? So I don't know what a lot is for you. All I'm saying is that when we first started seeing each other, we were probably having sex three to four times a week. And now it's much different picture. Now it's like maybe two to three times a month, right? Which is different. Right. I, I think, Are you still mad that I'm throwing out no, numbers? No, I'm still not. I was never mad in the first place. I'm just saying that I think the whole point of us having this conversation is to establish that not having sex with the very specific numbers that everyone's so interested in knowing right. a week does not, it's not directly correlated to whether or not your relationship is healthy. That's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, and I love you. Sorry, I, I love you too. And I, I think that society has very much deemed that if you start having less than three to four times a week, that's not a healthy relationship anymore, and that means something is lacking in your relationship. And for the first time in my life, and maybe I'm just coming more into my like womanhood and sexuality, I don't feel the need to be having regular sex to feel like I am an emotionally healthy place. Okay, a question. Yes. And this is one I've been thinking about myself. Do you think that we're just telling ourselves that, that I don't need sex to define, you know, how much I love someone because we don't want to stare in the face that like, oh, we're not having, a, we're not having enough sex and something's missing, right? No, so I we've re we've redefined it so that we can say, Hey, this is, this is a lie that society's been telling us. No, I have a really simple answer to that because when we have sex, it's still fucking awesome. So if we were having really shitty sex and we were only having it once to twice a month, then I would be worried. But the fact that when we do have sex, it's connected, it's awesome, it feels great, it's lovely, like, yeah, that's good sex. It's just not happening two times a day. You look really cute right now. <laughs> Do you think that we should bring on Esther Perel? Yeah, I feel like she might have a, a better way of, of formulating all of this information. And everyone, you need to stick around for segment three because we've collected some voice memos from listeners and we've tried to gather a wide range uh, of folks. And they, we asked, the assignment was to send us two minutes and share what your relationship with sex is. Yes, it's quite fascinating. So please tune into segment three. All right, let's intro Esther Perel.
Esther Perel is a Belgian psychotherapist and one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. Fluent in nine languages, she helms a therapy practice in New York City, serves as an organizational consultant for Fortune 500 companies around the world, and is the New York Times bestselling author of The State of Affairs and Mating in Captivity. Her two celebrated TED Talks have garnered more than 20 million views, and she is also the host of the award-winning podcast, Where Should We Begin? You can learn more at estherperel.com or by following at estherperelofficial on Instagram. My eyeballs just turned into hearts. Oh, I like when that happens. Well, for Esther. <laughs> oh. Um, I am so, so excited to have Esther here today because, and Esther, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple years ago, we were at Summit at Sea, and this is this event put on by the Summit Series, and Esther was giving her talks there, and uh, one of my friends was like, you have to go listen to her. She's the most magnificent, electrifying human you're ever going to meet. Go, 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 go. And I was very privileged. The first time I heard you speak was in a more intimate structure. And then by the end of the event, everyone on the freaking yes. boat had <laughs> to listen to you. And you were speaking in front of thousands of people. And I was madly in love with you. Yes. It's so much so that she was texting me, like, please look up her TED Talk. So then I was at home, not at Summit at Sea, looking up the TED Talks. You've been one of my number <laughs> one guests to get on this show. Yes. So when you said yes, I was doing we are. We're constant happy dances. And while Catherine <laughs> is well-versed on your background, I know some of our listeners won't be. So can you just start off by sharing a little bit of your background and how you got into this field? Yes. So I am a Perel. I'm a couples therapist. I'm a family therapist as well been in practice for 30 plus years. I am also an author and I specialize in one particular triangle, which is relationships, how they change with large cultural shifts, migration, forced or voluntary migration, mixed marriages, the revolution of the digital, the changes of political regimes, how big cultural changes in societies change gender roles and child rearing practices. And then after 20 years of doing that, I added sexuality as the lens through which to look at how societies deal with change and with tradition, if you want, you know, as a lens into societies, into relationships. So it's culture, sexuality, mm -hmm. relationships is the triangle where I live. And, and you speak so openly. I think that's what I remembered about you the most is that you talked about such quote unquote taboo topics in such an open uh, relatable way where I, I was going through a lot in my head when I first heard you speak and after you just gave space and air permission to feel mm -hmm. exactly how people were feeling how I was feeling um, but what kind of kickback do you get because you are talking about such taboo topics so do you experience any like oh my gosh you're talking about affairs in this way that's so open when traditionally in culture, we've always been like, oh, you can't talk about that. That's a bad thing. Right. So the way I engage people in the conversation about my latest book, which is infidelity, marriage mm -hmm. and infidelity, or relationships and infidelity, is that I ask one very simple question. Have you been affected by infidelity in your life? Either because you were the child of parents who were unfaithful or who left for someone else, or you're the child of an illicit love, 
or you're the friend that somebody's been weeping to for days, or you're the friend who's been recruited as the confidant to someone else who's in the throes of an affair, or you are one of the three primary characters, the strayer, the person who is betrayed, and the third person, the lover. And after I ask it like that, about 85% of the people will raise their hand. And now it becomes clear that we're not talking about somebody else and a few bad apples, but we're talking about us. Mm -hmm. And then I say, this phenomenon is ubiquitous. It has existed since marriage was invented. It usually is dealt with in black and white, with massive judgment for all parties involved, for that matter, and which sh enshrouded in shame and in secrecy. We can do better. We need a different approach for the oldest sin, a different conversation that is more caring and more compassionate, no less accountable, but more caring and more compassionate. And that doesn't mean it's condoning, and that doesn't mean it's justifying, and that doesn't mean getting anybody laid away, get away with murder. That is simply some subjects are way too complex to have a one-size-fits-all, and this is one of them. Pain, betrayal, deception, lies, secrecy, the entire human drama is encapsulated in the story of infidelity, love, and, um, and it's been dealt with um, in very poor ways that don't help the hundreds of the thousands of people that I've worked with who are in the midst of the crisis of an affair. Right. All right, before I jump in and actually ask very personal questions that I want <laughs> answers to. We've begun the session. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? I'm sure it happens to you every single time, right? Just At first about. it's like, here's a couple questions that are general, and then I'm like, like okay, so us. here's the thing. <laughs> uh, okay, before I go there, you have um, this part early in the State of Affairs, your New York Times bestselling book, where you basically say there's one sentence that's like, I love you, and then the next one, let's get married, and you flesh out how throughout human history those two statements, I love you and getting married, weren't always intertwined. And I think for people in 2017, it's hard to remember that throughout human history, love and marriage have not necessarily been married. Correct. <laughs> so what, what is the foundation of marriage and how did we get to this place now where we believe it should be about so much more than it has historically been? You could break it down in three levels. Um, and this is mirroring a little bit the work of uh, my colleague Eli Finkel. We had traditional marriage. Traditional marriage wanted families, children, economic support, companionship, social status. That was what marriage afforded you. From traditional marriage, with very clearly delineated gender roles and hierarchies and power structures, and by the way, in traditional marriage, monogamy was primarily an imposition on women mm -hmm. for economic reasons, and men have practically had a license to cheat throughout history, everywhere. So monogamy had nothing to do with love. Let's be clear on that. It was for patrimony and lineage. From the traditional marriage, we moved to the romantic marriage. The romantic marriage still wanted everything that the traditional marriage was about, but now it also want, brought love into marriage and sex to love. And since we no longer had sexuality that was primarily for reproduction and a woman's marital duty, sexuality now became rooted in desire. It was sexuality for pleasure and connection. After all, why remain sexually involved with someone for 20, 30, 40 years after you've had your two children? So it's pleasure and connection rooted in desire. We also brought happiness down from the heavens, and we want to be happy in our relationships. We no longer just divorced because we were unhappy. We began to divorce because we could be happier. And then we brought to marriage the self-actualization. 
So now we are waiting 10, 15 years longer before we even commit to, so to our chosen partner. We have years of sexual nomadism, and we are looking for the one and only. It's not just I love you, it's you're the one and only. You're the one for whom I delete my apps. <laughs> you know. Tinder, Tinder etc. Et like. <laughs> you cure me of my case of FOMO. I won't feel like there was somebody better I could get. So now you are the one for whom I am everything and you are everything for me. And we are really asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. So it's not just I love you, let's get married. It's I have found my soulmate. And soulmate mm -hmm. for most of history meant God, not your partner. You know, so we have now brought to romantic love the very things that we used to look for in religion, in our secularized societies. This is what the one I love, let's get married, means. So we've gone from marriage as an economic institution to marriage as a romantic institution to marriage as an institution for self-actualization, yeah. plus all the rest. Okay, before you jump in, one more question. Is, this is that a good, a good history lesson? In it was minutes? fantastic. I'm, I'm trying to digest okay, this all. My, I know, my jaws just stick off. I know where you're going because <laughs> I love this quote too, and I saw you pull it up, and that's perfect. But first, is this a good thing that we've done this? Hmm. It is. I don't tend to think in good, in, you know, most people don't necessarily want to go back. You know, uh, most women certainly don't want to go back. We don't want to go back to a model where we had uh, no possibility for divorce, except the only way out of misery was an early death. We don't want to go back to a time before contraception. We don't want to go back to a time where we had 10 children and we worked nonstop. We, 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 the, it, but that doesn't mean that this model doesn't have its fickleness. Uh, you know, marriages that are rooted in arranged systems um, are often more stable. They have different expectations, they and, but they are more stable. We have less stability today. So here's the data. The data is that the marriages of today that do well, this is Eli Finkel's data, the marriages in, of today that do well do better than any of the marriages in history. Those that succeed in meeting all those needs because there has never been more expectations piled into one relationship than today. But the vast majority of the relationships don't meet those expectations. Right. Yeah, I know you're not a sports person, but uh, it's almost as if the relationships of today, if you apply like a gymnastics metaphor, they start out with a 10.0 value that they could have because you could have love, you could have happiness, you could have stability, you could have kids, you could have all these things, whereas relationships in the past maybe started out with like a 6.0 value because you wouldn't always have love and happiness. But within that, it comes just so much more disappointment when you feel like you see everyone around you have everything and you feel like you're missing something. What's it like for you that I wrote a book about relationships <laughs> without a single sports metaphor? It's crazy! <laughs> I mean, everybody always pulls on some kind of sports metaphor. I wouldn't have known. It's like if you so, want a next edition, she's I'm like, happy to give you a I'm like, Esther, I know that you're not a sports person, but I'm going to use a sports metaphor for <laughs> yeah, you. Give me a few so that when <laughs> I give talks, I can actually... Yes. <laughs> we'll add it to the repertoire. I, so this is... I've always thought this about marriage, that ultimately marriage to me seems archaic. And you describe it so well that marriage has changed because relationships are changing. So my question that I chew on, do you think that the parameters of actual marriage need to change? But they have changed all along. They have continuously changed. 
they changed from the from the focus on the economics and and relationships shifted from being primarily regulated by duty and obligation mm -hmm. in the West anyway to being much more today ruled by choice by connection by intimacy by 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 self fulfillment we have a different set of expectations to relationships that we bring to marriage marriage has evolved from being able to have blended families single parent families surrogate families gay families I mean. Marriage has been a breeding, living institution. It hasn't been a static thing with always the same thing. You know, we used to marry and have sex for the first time. Today, you marry and you stop having sex with others. <laughs> we used to think that monogamy was one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. <laughs> and people tell you regularly that they are monogamous in all their relationships, plural. I mean, th the notion that we come from something static and it is being shaken and broken is not the case. People will always look for ways to create family. And they will find that, and, but the one thing that is clear is that it won't be a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift that is taking place is that for a while we've had, coupledom has taken on one model. Family actually has been much more reconfigured in, plur in plural ways, but coupledom has remained rather monolithic. And it is that that today people are questioning how do we marry commitment and freedom? It used to be that marriage meant commitment and very little freedom. Today, in our Western world, we want to marry two fundamental sets of values, our, va our need for commitment and stability and security with our need for freedom and exploration um, and self-actualization. And we are looking for ways to do that. And the younger people more than anybody because they are often the children of the boomers who are often the divorced and the disillusioned. Okay, it's time. I'm sorry. I have, we it's time for the session to start. No. <laughs> so we were discussing, we were flying home yesterday from San Francisco. We had your book out at the airport and we're, we're chatting about like what we want to get into with you. One question we didn't talk about, but I would like to know the answer to. Oh. And I hope I'm not revealing too much here, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Catherine and I are in a relationship and... Our listeners know this. I was just pointing out, if, if you didn't know this. Yeah, that's not the big bomb. Right. That's not it. <laughs> Letting Catherine know. When we met, we were each either seeing other people or, in Catherine's case, I married. I was married. Kate was dating. And, um, married to a man or to a woman? I was married to a man. Um, and there's this little thing in the back of my mind. Maybe it's like something my mom said like as we first started seeing each other. Or a friend. Like When you get together with someone, but it comes from... A, a point where you not infidelity okay maybe infidelity of some sort do you is that is that shaky foundation is or have you seen where people like it, it was meant to be and so they built a strong foundation under that or what are your thoughts on that it's a great question every couple has its origin myth i ask every couple in the first hour how did you meet what drew you to each other how did you feel about yourself in the presence of him or her? What is one vulnerability that your partner grapples with? And how have you related to that vulnerability? Every story has a beginning. And that beginning um, may be that one of you had a parent who was dying and she was there when my mother died. And that brought us so much closer right away. And one is we waited for each other for four years because we were living in different countries. And one was I had never felt anything like this and I knew that I had been lying to myself. And I felt a level of truth that I was reckoning with that was really, really powerful for me. 
loads of stories, loads of stories. Um, we would like to think that relationships that began with a transgression are more, sh are more shaky, more unstable. I don't know that this has ever been proven. What is clear is that some stories are love stories and some stories are life stories. Yours began as a love story and then transitioned into a life story. It meant some it, it was more than just the feelings. And a life story is not only about feelings, it's also about values. So you had both. Um, I think that, um, you know, the question that often people have when they begin in a sense of in a state of high passion and transgression can often bring that kind of high passion is can this sustain itself? You know, no, it changes. It changes all the time into other things. Um, but the notion that because it started in secrecy or with lies or hidden because it was a forbidden love and so forth, by definition, will make it tainted. I don't know that we have any proof for that. I have follow-ups if you don't That have was your question, right? That was my no, question. No, that was our, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but I would ask you, if we were really in session, right. <laughs> I would say, is that something that you have been concerned about? Is that the thing that you've been told or that you've thought? It, it's more told. Yeah, yeah. Correct me, yeah. That, that myth is more like other people have said that, and not necessarily about our relationship, but just in general, that if, you, if if you were seeing someone else when you met someone that now all of a sudden that, that foundation is shaky. What I have struggled with is that there's some sort of inherent quality in someone if they have ever cheated on someone. Could that, they do this to me? Could they do this to me? And is that is it one of those things where if you've ever done something like that, it's like an inherent flaw in your character and you will continue to do that thing or were there happened to be a set of circumstances where that happened? So I have an example in one of the episodes of the podcast in Where Should We Begin? There is a man whose wife has an affair and he is shaken and shocked by the speed with which the whole thing caught on for her. And it went from, his, as he says, it went from zero to 60 in, in no time. But then when I asked them how they met, they met in Europe. And, um, and within a very short amount of time, she moves to the U.S., she leaves her entire life, and he was the recipient once of that very decisive energy, or you could say impulsive energy, but that energy once was very pleasurable and very meaningful to him when he was the target of it, when he was the recipient of it. Of course, this time, it's a complete different experience. When you have certain attributes to yourself, they may express themselves in one place or in the other. So, yes... There is something about, but if you say she cheated, she could she cheat on me? It's very different than if you say she was able to recognize something about herself and about us. See, it has to do a little bit with the story you tell. Mm -hmm. And I hope that she won't have that feeling for someone else. I want it to stop with me. But I would say to you, this is a fear that anyone who lives in a culture of free love has to contend with forever you or your partner could fall in love with someone else. That's when you asked me, are the marriages that are rooted in love more fragile? Yes, they are subject to the vagaries of the heart. Indeed, they are more fickle. I relate to this so much because when, uh, with my ex-husband, and I've never considered myself to have a wondering eye, but I confess in this podcast <laughs> that in, in my relationship with my husband, I did. And there were many people that I noticed and many people that I fantasized about and that I saw myself being uh, sexually more happy or emotionally more happy. 
and to the point where I did wonder if something was wrong with me. And then when I met Kate, that was that big wake-up call. And it, it, it took a second because my initial response was, oh, maybe you can be in love with more than one person at the same time. And it was very, I think that was this fantasy land that I was living in to kind of excuse these strong feelings that I was having for her. And then it quickly realized that I was actually had been very unhappy in this marriage for a very long time. And meeting her was this ability for me to see, like, that's my human, that's my happiness. Um, but but you it, see, even the idea, I've been very unhappy in this marriage, and therefore I, and I'm, I allow myself, I give myself the permission to leave it. Those mm -hmm. are very new, you know, when I say new, we're talking about, yeah. you know... But deep down, I'm like, oh, I'm married. I signed the contract, right. so I need right. to stay in this. What right do I have? What is the personal entitlement vis-a-vis -vis the, the loyalty or the commitment or the responsibility to the person I did my vows with? Yeah. That is at the core of modern relationships today. Is this, and, and we have tilted. We have lived for a long time as I owe everything to the commitment, yeah. and I'll just live my misery. To the I am entitled and I am so entitled today. It's not like we have necessarily more desires than our grandmothers had, but we certainly feel more entitled to pursue them. This is the consumer culture. And in that consumer culture, we want more, and we want better, and we feel that we deserve that better. And that's you know where people often sit, is in the, in the, gra the grip of, can I, may I, do I deserve, am I important enough, um, and the consequences that it will have to all the other people who were part of this relationship. A marriage is never just two people. A marriage is yeah. a system. I need to read that quote oh. now. Sure. Uh, it's page 46. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad you know. because <laughs> <laughs> From page 46 of the State of Affairs. Uh, the swiping culture lures us with infinite possibilities, but it also exerts a subtle tyranny. The constant awareness of ready alternatives invites unfavorable comparisons, weakens commitment, and prevents us from enjoying the present moment. And I know in, in that, obviously, because it's in the book, you're talking about relationships, but I feel like it's applicable to jobs and even like Absolutely. picking where you're Everything. going to dinner. Like there's a level of life optimization that we can now engage in where it's almost, it steals, it almost steals happiness to some degree. We'll be at the grocery store and we have nowhere to be and there's hardly anyone in line and we have two things that we're checking out with and Kate will figure out which line is going to be I would have done faster. that regardless of technology, but I will go to a restaurant and I've looked it up on Google re reviews and I will think, okay, but there's one down the street and across that has 0.3 more stars and the ambiance looks better. And I think there is a, a, a metaphor there as well to how we view relationships now. Um, there was no question in that. It was mostly, uh, when do you, where do we go with that? Like, look, I, how, I, how do we, how do we I manage that? I think that um, it's absolutely clear that when you have three choices, it's much better than no choices. But if you have 30 choices, it's crippling. <laughs> because it's left on you to have to figure out which one. And so we have today a real issue of uncertainty and crippling self-doubt. Hence, a proliferation of experts who proclaim to know for you. And, <laughs> and I often have to say, it's like, I am not. I am almost an anti-expert on this. I'll think about a lot of things. 
I have given this a lot of thought, but I don't have answers. I have a, a way of framing the questions. It's much more that. And so what you have at this moment with this level of self-doubt is that the burdens of the self have never been heavier. You, you, know, you used to have bells of the church to wake you up in the morning. Now you have to decide when you set your alarm clock. You also have to decide if you want your alarm clock to be your phone so that the first and the last thing that you do at the day is with your phone, not with anybody else. You have to decide how much you want to exercise. You want to exercise. You have cookies you put in front of me here. <laughs> I'm going to be watching these cookies the entire session and deciding do I want to eat these cookies or not. The burdens of the self are on me for things that used to be regulated through religious systems, cultural systems, hierarchies in the family, authority systems. All of it is me. And that consumer mentality, can I do better? Is there more? Often prevents us from actually enjoying what we have. Everybody knows that there is a whole industry on happiness because this elusive pursuit of happiness that makes you think that there is better all the time prevents you from actually enjoying what you have. Good enough is no longer good. And that, I think, is true in many areas. I was at a conference this weekend, which I led for therapists and coaches and educators, part of my sessions platform. We had a, a, a full room. And I was asking the people, how many of you, by coming to study about relationships with me today, are feeling that you are being unfaithful? Like how many of you are having an infidelity, you know, to come in uh, outside of your own uh, clinical schools and clinical chapels for that matter? And I think this is, you know, people who have jobs and then have side gigs think that they're having infidelities, that they are transgressing, that they are reneging on the full commitment of what they should be having with their primary employer. I mean, we are continuously trying to see, is there else, something else here around the corner that I haven't yet explored? And there is something powerful about that because it breeds creativity, but it doesn't necessarily breed commitment. Okay, I have a follow-up. Okay, And maybe you're not allowed to, to answer questions about yourself, but, but I'm going to try anyway. How do you manage that? You're alive yes. in 2017. I'm assuming you have, you, when you want to go to dinner, you're looking up a million different places. Maybe not. How are you managing this, like, explosion of information? Oh, I can answer that very easily, actually. So I'm 35 years married. I have two sons, 21, 24. Um, I am very much a communal mentality. My whole life is fairly set up, you know, as part of a community. So if I want to go out, I don't go to Google. I call two people that I know have do Google and do eat a lot <laughs> out in many places. And I just say, I have guests from Europe. I have this kind of dinner. Uh, send me two suggestions. I completely rely on my circle and on those in my circle who I think are the source for whatever. If it's a doctor, if it's a restaurant, if it's I'm going to travel, where and have you have you traveled there? Um, and I don't even look once they have said it because that would take so much time to have to search and then I get lost in the vortex of the <laughs> of the web. You told me this is a good place to stay. It will be fine because in the end, what will make it fine is my attitude. Mm -hmm. I need to do that. Yeah, Kate's okay. really digesting I'm that one right I'm now. <laughs> right. I'm following up because I... What's the two plays I need to see this season? Which movie? The same thing with books. Same thing. Yes, like yes. I haven't gone to the movies in months because I'm on book tour. I would like to go to a movie tonight. I'm not you won't go to RottenTomatoes.com to oh, see... No, no, no. You no. will call a friend and be like... I have two movie critics that are... One of my closest friends is a phenomenal movie critic. I don't need to ask anybody else. Right. S 
I, I need a bigger circle of friends so they can <laughs> be my Google. I completely <laughs> rely on the village. I am not, I cannot begin because, you know, I don't know who wrote the reviews. I mean, of course, I can make, and if I ask my sons, they may go do this and they'll say, this has 75 positive and they, they looked at the negative, they see what the negative has said, yeah. you mm. know, that kind of thing. But me personally, I rely on human beings that I know, who I know are each of them a little you know, expert of sorts or invo involved in, passionate about. Um, they'll tell me what I need to see, what I need, where I need to eat, where I should go have a quiet meeting. Um, it is so much faster. And it's one text or one phone call, not 10 emails. Right. right. I mean, I think... And not an hour on the web. Conserving your oh, time. Yeah. It's a waste of time. But e extending on that concept of happiness with your job and, and as someone who's in the wellness field as well and giving energy constantly and being I mean in the front well of people. Being, not and in the, the well-being, correct. That is correct. It's different. Uh, but you give so much. And I, I'm very curious, and I know so many people listening to this or have this question of themselves. When you give so much in your life, in your family, in your career, what are the steps that you take? To receive. Yes. To take care of myself. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Um, we've just done a month-long book tour, about, about 30 talks. And from 500 to 1,000 people events every night. And um, we made sure somebody at the first night, uh, the, the partner of a friend of mine, said he invited us for dinner. And I, he travels the world and for work. And I said, what do you do when you're in these hotels every night? And I says, I make sure I finish every day with a beautiful meal, some wine, and uh, good company. So every night for 35 days, we have had dinners at night after every event with people who hosted it, who, f who, who arranged everything, and we ended with a beautiful meal and, and friendship. Um, and it was so nurturing, so nurturing. And then, so that was really being taken care of. I finished the talk, somebody took me, I didn't have to decide where do I want to go, mm -hmm. what do I, somebody decided all of this for me. It was all ready. I just needed to walk to the place or to drive to the place. The company was arranged, and I could then decide who else uh, knew in town that I wanted to join us. Um, the other thing, this weekend was one of my first weekends in town. I made sure I went to yoga. I uh, had somebody come and do a private session with me that, some, that a friend of mine gave me to, to <laughs> say, you know, you're so exhausted, take care of yourself. <laughs> I, um, I have no problem taking care of myself. I just need to, you know, and I need... Somebody who just, but what do I mean is taking care of myself? Is somebody who decides. Somebody who I trust, knows their stuff, and then just says, do this, mm -hmm. do that, sit, stand, bend. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, the caretaking for me is not to have to think and not to have to make decisions. Yeah. So I need somebody I can trust that their decisions will be fine by me. And then I feel utterly taken care of. Could be my yeah. husband, could be my friends, could be teachers, but... Um, it's it's that I need at some point for someone else to take charge. Do, I know it's a cliche now, but you know President Obama would always wear the same exact suit every day because he didn't want to have to think about what, to what suit to wear. Which oh, is I so can smart. tell you how I've done that. How have you mastered that? I have a friend who knew a, a, a young woman, and her name is Jamie Disler. I'll more than happy make her publicity. <laughs> she <laughs> came to my house and she arranged bunch t 35 45 sets of what was in my closet we took picture of every single one of these sets on me oh, and when i go on any tour 
I open my phone, I look at all the sets, and I decide which are the five or six I want to take with me. Wow. I I, so I have the diversity, a variety. I know it fits because I've had it on me. I don't have to think. Um, and it, it saves time, and it's diverse, and she knows me, and she has a good eye, and I feel that's another version of being taken care of. Yeah. You have so many human Googles. I mean, you yes. have a human for everything. And, and, did, and did you ever... Ha and I share them, too, because when they're really good, they, they, they're not just good for me. Right. Yeah. W was there a point where you saw yourself being on your phone more and then you were like, no, I need, I don't like this? Or did you all throughout, if going back 25 years ago before we had these iPhones, had you always lived in this community way and so you never even felt pulled to all of a sudden start Googling restaurants and Googling movies? Or did you have a breaking point at some no, point? No, I think it's also generational. The phone is harder for me. <coughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I came to the phone and to the internet late. So this all pre-existed for me. They pre-existed. When the facts came out, were you born? Mm -hmm. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> when the facts came out and I could schmacks for the first time, <laughs> the notion that I could put something out that would arrive across the Atlantic at the same time was marvelous <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't need to write letters and wait for weeks for a, a, a response to come. But I already knew who I was writing to. So this, the village has been set up. I have friends from age six that are still in my life. So, um, But it is harder for me to go and search in the web than it is for me to call people. Um, so it comes actually quite natural. I still think I'm too much on the phone. Mm -hmm. I, I think that sometimes I love to text. And sometimes I think, come on, we've done 10 texts here to come up with something that it would take really one phone call. Yeah, so what are we doing? You know, and uh, and so I I try to do both. I try to make sure to still, you know, I realize lately that even I on occasion will do the text versus the call because I'm on the train and it's easier to mm -hmm. to write. But I I am trying to redress this for myself. Um, vers web versus people. People come easier to me than web, and people pre-existed the web, and I prefer people I know. Um, we listen to your podcast. Wow, I'm blanking on his name. Very famous podcast that we listen to. Oh, Tim to. Ferriss. Oh, Tim Ferriss. <coughs> um, and you talked so much about growing up in Belgium with the community. How ha can you share a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up and how you think that's impacted both, it sounds like, the way you live your life now and also some of your work? I actually had a, made a connection about this just last weekend, interestingly. You think you've already figured out right. the connecting Mind dots. It all. But it's, uh, so um, I am the daughter of two parents who are both Holocaust survivors. And uh, they are the sole survivors of their entire family. They both came to Belgium by, ch by chance, really, and were meant to stay in Belgium for just, they had permits for three months at the time as refugees. And they chose to stay in Belgium. So they then stayed five years as illegal refugees in Belgium. So the story of today is quite familiar to me personally. And I think that my parents, having been totally alone, populated, repopulated their village, their life, by creating a family of choice, by, mm. by bringing in many, many people that became a part of their life, who many of them also were sole survivors. So this is, I'm alone, you're alone, I have nothing, you have nothing, let's be together. 
this was what this was. And I absorbed this quite by osmosis, the notion that you rely on others. You, others are there to help you. I never had a sense that you are alone. Um, I have no problem asking for help. I have no problem people asking me for help. I love it. It makes me feel like I matter, like I'm important, like I have something to give. Um, I don't come from a culture of self-reliance and self-containment and self-sufficiency in, in a way that is more part of the effort optimism of the American ethos, you know? Um, in Antwerp, where I primarily grew up, I lived in a community uh, of 15,000 Jews. 90% of them were survivors of the Holocaust. Eastern European Jews who were all refugees that came. Um, and I think that part of my interest in the erotic, in what gives people a sense of aliveness and vitality. So the first thing I would say is the notion that the quality of your relationships determines the quality of your life, which is one of my primary ideas. I think grew out of that. Mm -hmm. And then the notion that I believe that you can experience a sense of vitality and aliveness in your relationship also came out of that. Because I watched my parents come back from hell and, and basically reclaim a joie de vivre mm. and, and a meaning. There was, you know, I was not just a child. I was a miracle. It's clear. Uh, me and my brother, we were miracles. We were symbols of revival, survival and revival. We had bigger meaning. We were meant to be the, the hundreds of people that died. You know, so there's a big burden also on children of survivors. This is not unique to, to me at all. Um, but to see people who were able to reclaim life, to, uh, to, to, to take risks, to be creative, to love again, to make love again, to have children in a world that had been so bleak, um, you learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, I write a book about betrayal, mm -hmm. and, but I write about intimate betrayal. And then I look at my parents and their community, and those people were not betrayed by others that were close to them only. They were betrayed by humanity, you know? So when I think about how do you heal, how do you recover trust when it has been broken, how do you love again, I do draw on my parents and their entire community. It's not the same experience because it's not infidelity, but it is betrayal. And, um, and I think it gives me a sense of what accountability means, what being responsible means, what feeling remorse and guilt means, and what um, trusting again means. I'm going to try to compile a lot of things that you've said. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, it makes, uh, it makes it so makes much sense. It, it, this, so this concept of second chances and responsibility, and I love what you said earlier today where you said you don't have the answers, you're giving a stronger framework for the questions. Um, so I don't know if I'm asking for good questions or an answer from you right now. But I do have opinions. <laughs> I don't have <laughs> answers, but I have opinions. But in, in this vein of second chances, Kate and I are going to get married, and we're trying to be accountable to each other, to our relationship, to our future. And so we're also, before doing this, trying to figure out what questions do we ask each other about this concept of marriage, about kind of our expectations of each other and what this union means. Be I tried to do that in my first marriage. And, well, I didn't try to do it, actually, I did. Mm -hmm. How long were you married? We were married for... About how long were you together? We were together for four years. Mm -hmm. And the marriage was 
a year and a few months before we separated. Um, but we did sit down and talk about kind of what our expectations of marriage and what it meant. And I, I have a feeling that when I set mine, he agreed, but I can tell in retrospect he didn't actually agree. I think mm -hmm. he was just trying to make me happy. So this is getting convoluted really fast. I understand, No, I know where you're going. But so, you know, what... I'm curious with all the couples that you've spoken to, is there any questions? Guideline, or I guess, about what questions you should tackle. Um, when it comes to sex, I think is like, in a lot of ways, it's like, if I jump off of yeah, what no, you're saying, ahead. like, I think the thing we've talked about is if we both say, like, it's, we understand that at some point there will probably likely be outside people that, you know, draw your eye and interactions that you have. Have you found, and I'll ask a very specific one here, have you found that even if I say I'm going to be okay with that, uh, how do I do the work to really make sure that I'm open to that concept going forward? Like if I say I'm going to be okay if five years from now you say I met this other person and like I want to talk about it, how, how do I actually know that I'm going to be you okay with that? You don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you don't. Look, I think that the, the bigger questions first, you know, how do you see life? What is your idea of how you want to live? Do you have any sense of that, of the things that are important to you? Um, if it matters to you to live in nature versus cities, if it mm -hmm. matters to you to travel, if it matters to you to be creative, if, it, if you need security more than freedom or if you need freedom more than security, do you want to be a freelancer? How do you answer that? <laughs> you know, I... I guess what, what you bullet give us point the questions, questions and the answers, I please? Can <laughs> <laughs> I can say... Like, security and freedom is such a... Yes, but, you know, we all need both. Right. But I need security. I know, that came for to me example, so quickly. Okay. I, I knew way back when that I needed, I needed both. There's no doubt. But I could live with a little bit less security better than I could live with no freedom, which mm -hmm. meant I have never worked for anybody which meant I was always on my own, which right. meant I didn't have the security of the paycheck. Yeah. And there were many, many times when I had very, very little. I came here with absolutely nothing. Um, you know, so I, I knew that, that that's how it affected. It wasn't just a large concept. It meant I, you know, I'd rather hustle and deal with the insecurity of not knowing where the check will come because I really need to know that I can leave whenever I want to leave. Nobody mm -hmm. can tell me when I should go on vacation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I was 25 when I said this. This is not a, a mature concept, you know. And then I, I knew that I have a partner with whom I have an enormous intellectual compatibility. And that, to me, was very important. It doesn't matter to everybody. We could talk forever so that even when I'm really an angry or annoyed, or I can st I'm never bored with him. I still think he's a fascinating human being. And I can imagine that that will not dry up. That is because he remains an interesting person all the time, doing the things that he does, and I, I can draw from there. I knew that he wanted children, and I wanted a family. And he wanted me to have children, and we would have a family. You know, both of us knew that. I think that's a major one. Um, I was hoping that we wouldn't live necessarily the whole time in the U.S. Would you be willing to move when you're a cross-cultural couple? You, that it becomes a central question. And I think those conversations, the conversation about monogamy is a part of that. You know, what would hurt you most? You know, where do you draw the lines? Given that you saw me when you were still married, what would happen if you see somebody else while you are married to me? You know, would you come tell me? 
what would you tell me? What is it that I would want to know? Uh, can we then talk about it? Because there is a way in which if you say, I can't handle it, we invite the other person to not tell us the truth. You know, there is a dance around truth-telling and transparency. If I don't react well, I don't want you to go underground because of it. I want you to give me the time. Sometimes we first react strongly, then we calm down, then we have a different response. There's level one, level two, level three kind of thing in these responses. Give me time. Don't shut down because I, inf because I get scared. And let my fear make you go and hide from me. You know, my fear may be normal. And maybe I have more fear than you. And maybe it's because you deny your fear, not because you don't have any. You know, what you see isn't what it is necessarily in a couple. And often the person who expresses something is actually expressing something that the other person is more reluctant to express but has no less of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that kind of conversation. I don't know what I'm going to experience. I have a sense that it's this. This would really hurt me more because I think that for me, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah. But once it happens, what you want is to be able to stay open and available to each other. I thought this was what was going to hurt you, me, but I realized that what I'm jealous about is actually something very different. Mm -hmm. And now becomes the question, if I'm really jealous, does that allow me to say to you, don't do it, or please watch yourself, or please curb your enthusiasm, you know, for us, for the sake of us. Don't do things that you know would threaten us, even if they are good for you, because the us becomes the entity that we both serve. It is our relationship, and we protect our relationship, not each other only, but the, the, that canopy that sits above us. That's a concept I like very much. If you're going to say something, before you talk, ask what would this do to us? Is this a good statement for us, or is this a thing that's going to put us into a complete silent you know, evening for the next four <laughs> hours? <laughs> if you're going to do this or not do this, what would that do for us? Uh, no, I really don't want to go to see this thing. But you know, us would actually feel good about my doing this. It would make it look like I'm there to do things just to please you, because pleasing the other is one of the fundamental things in a relationship. If I was alone or if I was with somebody else, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be doing other things. But the fact that I'm with you, I'm going to do this for you, my love. And you, your only thing is to say thank you. It means that I matter to you. Rather than, no, I don't want you to do this just because it's me. I want you to do this because you want to do this for yourself. Right. No. Right. Why for yourself? If it's not what, the only reason you're doing it is for me. Receive it. Receive it. So I'll give you one frame. You can go home and spend a few, a few days thank on you. that one. <laughs> Take seven verbs. You know, they're like the basic grammar in relationships, you know, or eight verbs. I've actually added one recently. <laughs> but, you know, to ask, to take, to give, to receive, to want, to play, or to share, if you want, and to refuse. And why did I choose this verb? It's because it's like when you learn a language, and I speak nine languages, so I've done this many times, you find what are the essential verbs you need to know to be able to begin to walk the streets and ask for things. In relationships also, there is a basic grammar, these verbs. And then play with them. How good are you at each of these verbs? Which one do you feel would be your weak spot? Which one would need more muscle? Which one do you think would be the one that you are more likely to, to, to struggle with? And, and then this becomes a framework. You know, It's very hard for me to ask. You ask so easily, you know? I only ask when I've accumulated good amount of resentment. Then I finally feel entitled because I'm deprived enough to finally say, now I can ask for something. And the other one says, why didn't you ask sooner? You know, well, 
And now we have the framework mm -hmm. of the verbs, because to love is a verb. You know, it's not just a permanent state of enthusiasm. Uh, we have to ask one quick question, though. Um, what's your favorite cookie? Oh, I think my favorite cookie are the Greek almonds, uh, the, the one with the white sugar power powder. Mm -hmm. Oh, the, like the wedding cookies, yes. kind of? Yes, oh. with, the, with the nuts in it. Yes. yes. There's nobody that I'm going to discuss this thing. I have a, a cookie. Li it's, it's neither here nor there. It's Esther Perel. I'm not going like, to debate her cookie. <laughs> like, don't, don't fight. Don't, don't fight. fight back. <laughs> That's a delicious cookie. Thank you for your time today. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Our final segment today is extra special because we reached out via our social media to our cookie monsters so they could submit their individual experiences and stories with sex. And it turns out that people are not super comfortable with talking about sex. Maybe the first segment highlighted that. <laughs> it can get dicey. It, it can get dicey, but we did get a, a few really lovely heartfelt experiences that we'd like to share with you today. And after listening to these, if you decide this is something you would like to share with us, you can send your experience to freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. We just ask for your name, which you can tell us not to use, your age, your gender, your sexuality, your marital or partner status and history, and if you have kids or not. And then about a two-minute description of what sex is like. For you. So we're going to kick it off with my friend Michelle. She is a trans bisexual female, age 61, who is divorced, has three kids, and two grandkids. Take it away, Michelle. Hi, Kate and Catherine. Michelle here. First, let me mention that I'm a big oatmeal raisin cookie fan. I'll just leave it at that. On to sexuality. It used to be so simple. For the first 55 years of my life, I was a heterosexual male and had no clue about the secret locked up inside of me. Once I started to become aware of my femininity, dating just got complicated. The heterosexual women I was dating all of a sudden had little interest in dating a cross-dresser, let alone the woman I was becoming. Time after time, as I shared this amazing journey I was on with them, I was moved from the end zone to the friend zone. A lot of tears were spent on my part grappling with this. Did the love go away? No, it just shifted. I think primarily because of social norms and pressure. Accepting the fact that I was now a lesbian, I started exploring that dating world. That's when I started to become aware of the stigma of being transgender. I was told on more than one occasion, I don't date trans women, or you're too feminine for me. I often felt like I didn't belong. A big part of this was my own self-doubt. I was struggling with my self-image as a woman, so I just gave up dating. It's not surprising that lesbian rules of dating are different than heterosexual rules. I'm still learning. Around 18 months ago, I had my gender confirmation surgery, 
I totally underestimated the emotional impact that would have on me. For the first time, I saw a woman when I looked in the mirror. That was huge. I also been drawn to dating men for the first time, and the whole new level of stigma, objectification, and potential for violence that comes with that. Navigating this is challenging. Having been a guy for 55 years, I thought I would understand men. But the fact is, I don't. I un only understood the man I was. The world is composed of a vast array of different personalities, social backgrounds, and emotional baggage in both men and women. As a result, sexual relationships are complex and challenging. Hopefully soon, someone special will come into my life and make it all worthwhile. What's up, Free Cookies Podcast? Kate and Catherine love what you guys are doing and really looking forward to this episode on sex and the weird stigmas we associate with it. 31-year-old dude, male, straight, living on the East Coast, have been married nine years now, sheesh, have a 16th-month-old beautiful daughter and another baby on the way, and I love sex. I have the blessing and sometimes the burden of being married to a therapist so you can imagine how important communication is in, is in our family. And that serves us well on our sex life. I'd like to think that we have a, a healthy relationship with sex. And that's not to say that there aren't downsides. When our relationship is bad, our sex life is probably one of the quickest things to, to suffer. But when it is good, it is good. And that's something that we seek. It's something that we really value in our relationship and something that we try to give each other. With communication, just like in all other aspects of our relationship, we find that when communication lines are open, the sex life is better, the relationship is more healthy. And in general, I think my wife would agree there's just too many stigmas associated with sex. We need to break some of these down, treat it as the healthy expression that it is, and really appreciate it. Really look forward to the episode. Want to hear what you guys think and what other listeners submit as their story. Thanks. See you guys later. Hi, I'm a 31-year-old female who currently identifies as sexually fluid and is in a polyamorous couple. Um, I've not always been this way. I was raised Mormon or LDS, where shame and guilt were the two only two things taught about sex and sexual desire. So then as I inevitably aged and got older and broke away from this belief system, as I did start to act out sexually and find my own sexual identity, because it has always been outside of what society deems the norm, it was then draped in more shame and guilt. And it really has taken a lot of personal work and a lot of calling on community and people around me and listening to podcasts and going to workshops to finally step into a space where 
I can say that I'm just someone who enjoys having sex and I enjoy having sex with a lot of different people and I consider sex a part of exploring myself and my own artistic expression and it's not because I'm acting against anything or I'm breaking away from anything but because I'm stepping into something which is my own identity and my own happiness. Um, I did take a two and a half year break from having sex after a really bad breakup where I did feel like the sex I was having was because I was trying to get away from or break away from someone or something. And I'm really glad that I did because two years just to focus on myself and my career and my platonic relationships really just grounded me back into myself so that I could go back out and be the sexual loving person that I have always wanted to be. Um, so I encourage everyone to step out of that shame and guilt that so many of us are raised from to find your tribe, to find your people, to find your acceptance, and to welcome sex as part of your everyday expression. Hi, I'm M. I'm a female. I'm heterosexual, but I have mad respect for the spectrum of sexuality. And I'm lucky enough to be married to the freaking love of my life, hottest man who I've ever laid eyes on. And we don't have any kids, but we have a couple of pets. And my husband, as I said, fine as hell. I love having sex with him. However, we both have really stressful jobs with a lot of travel and a lot of emotional entanglement with our work, and it becomes really difficult to get in the mood when I'm stressed out or he's been grumpy because he's stressed out because of our hectic careers. And I feel like I hurt his feelings if I turn him down, but it's not him. It's just you know, life gets in the way. And I feel like we talk about breaking the cycle, but nothing changes because our professional circumstances can't change. And it gets to be tedious. I'm a new wife and our sex was amazing when we were dating. It is still amazing when it happens, when we're away from home and the stressors are removed. But during the work year, it's just another chore on an endless list. And I don't want either of us to feel less loved or like we'll fail at our marriage because the other one isn't into it on any given night. And my biggest fear is just becoming this sexless marriage cliche. I want to be a good wife. I want to have a happy marriage that has a healthy sexual component. And I just want to know why Carrie Bradshaw didn't ever tell us about the sex we're not having. And we are down to our skivvies. We have nothing left to bear. <laughs> That'll do it for free cookies. You can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the gram at freecookiespodcast. You can find us on Patreon, brand new, patreon.com, and search free cookies. We would love if you do have the resources and you'd love to support the show. And also, this show is produced by Lindsay Collins. And we... We love you guys. Ooh, and people can rate and review the show. Do they can have- rate and review the show. They can subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on FreeCookiesPodcast.com. You can find you can- me 
in the latest issue of I don't know, I'm not in any sort of sex issue. So we're gonna just have to let that go. And we are wishing extra sexy time for all these people who if took they the want time it. to review us. If you want sexy time, whatever sexy time means to you, that might be pasta, if you know what uh, We wanna thank Jamie McVeigh, Nick Dave 81, Jill Manos, favorite game, Chrissy Bunsen, Melas 101, Tribe Fan Lisa, JMW underscore 1978, JLU305. Thank you so much for leaving us love at Apple Podcasts and keep it coming. Rawr! Get it? Keep it coming. Rawr! Keep on coming. <laughs> I got it. I know. Mwah. <laughs>